Today's scripture is Acts 4:32 through 5:11. And now the full number of those who believed were the one, one of heart and soul, and no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own, and they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were given giving their testimonies to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph was also called by the apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold, the, a, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, it did not remain your own. And after it was sold, was it not your, was not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? And you have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And a fear came upon all who heard of it. And a young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold the feet of those who have buried your husband at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young man came in, he, they found her dead and carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And now great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your gracious love. Um, that has stood the test of time and has been unconditional um, throughout all of our lives, Lord. And I pray that you just turn our hearts to your word. Um, you prepare us to hear the message that uh, you have laid on Rick's heart and that it changes us and stirs in us a great love um, and a need for action. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, good morning, everyone. If you haven't done so, please go ahead and open up your Bible to the book of Acts. So it's the fifth book in the New Testament. It's sandwiched right in between the Gospel of John and the book of Romans. And we're going to be in the text that was just read. So we're going to be starting in Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32 and working our way into chapter 5. And if uh, you don't have a Bible with you, well, we'll have the verses on the screen. But we always want some uh, folks to bring their own Bible, whether it is an old school paper copy, which some of us antiquated people still use paper, and then you have the younger folks using their electronic devices. Either way, it's good, but we want everyone to see it for themselves and uh, to, to read along and, and to see that uh, we're not just making stuff up here. So as you're turning to Acts chapter 4, uh, I'd like to quote uh, to you uh, something from what is uh, one of the greatest legal minds of our time, of our generation. 
Uh, L. Woods once said, exercise gives you endorphins. Endorphins make you happy. Happy people just don't shoot their husband. They just don't. And, and I'm very appreciative to such legal uh, minds, such as Counselor Woods, that just kind of tells us the, the obvious, that people that are filled with happy endorphins just don't go around homicidal. They don't go around killing, killing folks, let alone their husband. You expect a person that's filled with happiness to act a specific way versus someone who is not filled with happiness to act in a very unique way. So what we are filled with has an effect on us. It, it, it influences and it impacts us quite dramatically. So, for example, for years I have uh, consumed and ingested large doses of vitamin C, otherwise known as caffeine. Like that, I, I, I consume vitamin C at massive, like just incredible amounts, and it's namely in the form of coffee, because I love me some coffee. The reason I enjoy going to bed is so that I can wake up and drink coffee. For a year, I've had Jamie searching and scouring the land. What is the best coffee? What is the best coffee-making apparatus? What is the best way to make the best coffee ever? And so I enjoy coffee, and I drink a lot of it. Well, I've noticed for a while that I, just, I really don't sleep well. I, I, I have a hard time going to sleep, and then I have a hard time staying asleep. I toss and turn quite a bit, and, and I, this has been the case for a while. And so back in January, it got really bad, and I, I mentioned it to someone, and they said, well, maybe it's because you're drinking too much coffee. So after I slapped them, they, and they came to, you know, I, I started wondering. I was like, well, maybe, but no, that doesn't sound right, because I've always felt like I could drink a pot of coffee at 9 p.m., and it makes no, no difference. Like, I, I, how much caffeine is there in coffee? I've never felt that it really did much of anything, but... Why not? I'll give it a shot. And so I switched to decaf. Yes, I switched, I switched to decaf, which doesn't taste as good, by the way. But nonetheless, I said, let me give it a shot. Let me, let me see if this makes any difference. And, and to my shock, instantly, immediately, I was able to sleep a lot better. Like, I was able to get to sleep, less tossing and turning, able, I mean, better sleep at night. And the so-called caffeine kick or boost that I thought I was getting during the day, it turns out I really didn't need it anywhere as much as I thought that I needed it. So here I am, and it's just clear that what I was filling myself up with was having a very negative impact upon me my ability to not or non-ability to sleep at night and it's true that not only from a physical perspective but also from a spiritual one what we fill ourselves with does affect us for the good or for the bad what fills us determines whether we are spiritually jittery or whether we're spiritually at peace and calm what we're filled with actually will affect whether or not we have joy in our life what we allow ourselves to be filled with will determine the amount of negative spiritual health or positive spiritual health that we enjoy. It just really has a profound effect on us. So for that reason, we should be particularly vigilant about what it is that we let in. So Luke chapter 11 verse 34 says, For your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. What, what that scripture tells us is that our eyes are a gate. 
Our eyes are a gateway. So if I spend my time looking at good, wise, encouraging things, I will be filled with what? Good, wise, encouraging things. If I spend my time looking at dark things, corrupt things, perverse things, things that I shouldn't be looking at, bad things, guess what I'm going to be filled with? Bad, corrupt, dark things. It just makes sense. Well, it's not just our eyes that are a gateway. Our ears are also a gateway. So I can't tell you how many times over the last eight years in particular, I've heard someone tell me, you know, I'm just always angry. I'm angry all the time. They're pretty much the Hulk all the time. I'm angry all the time. But as soon as I stopped listening to the political talk radio people, everything got better. Like it happens a lot. Like people, and not just day, these days with the, the talk radio folks, now it's the cable folks. Like, man, you know what they get paid for, right? They get paid to incite anger. This is how they make their living. This, this is everything that they do. Everything is about inciting outrage. That, um, so people have told me that their demeanor, their countenance changes once they stop listening to all the political angst. When you listen to the stuff on the radio, on cable news, they, all that they do is tell you that everything's a crisis, everything's an emergency, everything is a conspiracy, and that anyone and everyone who holds the slightest different political opinion than you do is your mortal enemy. This is what they do. So they fill us with all this vitriol. They work us up into an emotional frenzy. So therefore... We have to be careful not only about what we spend our time looking at, but also listening to. Because what I look at and what I listen to ultimately is going to fill me with something. Either good thoughts or bad thoughts. Either good ideas or bad ideas. Good emotions or bad emotions. What I look at, what I listen to is going to affect my spiritual health either to the good or to the bad. Well, all, at the end of the day, being vigilant about what we look at and what we listen to it's really a question about what it is that I'm allowing to have influence over me. It's all a matter of who, not just what, but who am I allowing to influence my heart and my mind. So the, a truth we all need to take to heart is that we are filled either to the good or to the bad by the people around us and the things that they're doing and the things that they are saying. We're influenced to the good or to the bad by what we watch and what we listen to. So today we're looking at a story, a story in the Bible that shows how utterly important it is for us to be very, very careful about who we are allowing to have influence over our lives. And so if you are someone who wants to enjoy the good life that God offers and God freely offers, graciously offers us good life, abundant life, blessed life, if you want to enjoy peace in your life, then we need to be careful about who we're allowing to influence us. If you want to be love-filled, faith-filled, hope-filled, you got to be careful about who you're giving the allowance or the permission to influence you so that you may have the right thoughts and the right attitude and the right perspective. So we'll get right into our story here. Look at verse 32, Acts 4 verse 32. Since now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. We're just going to stop right there. 
The full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. What that means is that all the Christians that made up the early church in Jerusalem, they were on the same page. What that means is that they were united together. What that means is that there were no factions and no divisions among the early church in Jerusalem. Now, here's one thing you got to know about the book of Acts. The book of Acts is, at the end of the day, it really is a book about miracles. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples, Jesus' people, they get to see Jesus ascend up in a cloud into heaven. Pretty cool. Angels here. That's pretty miraculous. In Acts chapter 2, God's people are filled with the Holy Spirit and instantaneously, miraculously given the capacity to speak other languages. That's pretty miraculous. In Acts chapter 3, Peter looks at a guy who's been lame since birth, says, stand and rise. And just like that, that guy stood up, rose, started walking and jumping and praising God. That's miraculous. And if you read the rest of the book of Acts, it's miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Let me tell you. There may not be a greater miracle in the book of Acts than what it just said right there in verse 32. The very fact that the full number, a.k.a. all of them, all of them were of one heart and one mind. So consider this. In Acts chapter 1, there's 120 Christians. By the time you get to Acts, the end of Acts chapter 2, there's 3,120 Christians. It tells us in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, that, there were, that the church was made up of 5,000 men. So you could easily assume, once you add in the women, that the church membership is 10,000 or more. Acts 4, verse 32, is telling us that they're all one. 10,000 Christians all on the same page, reading off of the same sheet of music. One heart, one mind, one accord, one mission, one purpose. Folks, that is next level miracle if I've ever heard of one. Think about this. Think about this. 10,000 Christians all in one church, not a single one arguing about the carpet color. Not a single one arguing about the musical style. Too many hymns, not enough hymns. Too loud, too slow, too fast. Like no one is arguing about anything. They're on the same page. This is a beautiful thing. This is the way that it should be. And it's what Jesus prayed for, for us, for his church and for his individual churches in John 17, verse 11. In that verse, Jesus said, Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be what? One, even as we are one. So, anthemers, man, let, let's be influenced by this example. Let's be a united community of faith, all of us striving together for the things that really matter. Not getting hung up on the stuff that doesn't matter, but, but looking and staying focused on the things that truly matter, furthering the gospel, furthering God's kingdom, shining the light of Christ, all on the same page for the stuff that are eternal, not the things of the world, right? That's a good example for us to heed. So the early church is not only united, they're actually very loving to one another. So look at the second half of verse 32. It says, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So it wasn't like mine, like this is mine. No, like they held it in common. 
Look at verses 34 and 35. There was not a needy person among them. Why? How could there not be a needy person among them? For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, which was to say they brought it to church, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So there was no a church of 10,000 plus people and not a single person has a single need because the people aren't selfish. They're sharing everything that they have. Beautiful, right? That's what love looks like. That's exactly what love looks like. These Christians are willing to part with their property and bring the proceeds over to help those in need. They're willing to sell things that they had either inherited or bought with their hard-earned money to help fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Folks, that's love, right? Where do you think they got that idea from? That seems pretty radical. That's pretty out there. That's, that's crazy. Where do you think that they would get such an idea from? Sunday school answer, Jesus. They got it from Jesus. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So here's what this verse teaches us. Jesus, who is the Son of God, to whom all glory, everything belongs to him. He laid it down. He left the immeasurable riches of heaven and came and entered into this world in order to rescue us out of our spiritual poverty. This is God's war on poverty. This is God's spiritual war on spiritual poverty. So Jesus, he comes down, he takes flesh, and he's born. And not born into a regal palace, he's born into a lowly stable. And he could have been born into the family of this earthly king, but he wasn't. He was born into the family of a humble carpenter. And so here comes Jesus, and he grows up a poor kid in a poor town, and he grows up, and then he willingly, out of love for us, goes to a cross where he bankrupted himself to pay our sin debt. Now, that's what took place on the cross. He literally bankrupted himself in order to pay what we owe God, which is complete obedience and faithfulness to the Lord in every way. He gave up everything, including his life in order to rescue us out of our poverty. That's grace. That's love. That's what Jesus did for us. By God's grace, through faith in God's Son and what he did on the cross, we are now made rich. We are made spiritually rich. We're converted from sinners into co-heirs with Christ to fully inherit all of the riches of the glories of God's grace forever and ever at his side. That's the gospel. So, what do we do with that? How do you, how do you respond to such a generous, loving, sacrificial, giving act by such a benevolent God? How do you respond to that? 
there's two ways to respond to it. One is you embrace the gift. What God is offering is a generous gift of grace, of forgiveness, of salvation. You know what makes a gift a gift? Not only that it's offered, but also that it's received. Like simply offering someone a gift is not, doesn't make it a gift until the transaction is realized and the person claims it as their gift. Then it's a gift. So God offers a gift, but it doesn't become a gift unto us until we embrace it and take ownership of it. So what I would ask is if you're here this morning and that you've never embraced the gift of God, don't let it pass by. Embrace it. Hug it in. Claim it like a kid on Christmas morning, right? Rushing to the tree and saying, it's mine. I want the gift that, that my heavenly father has provided. Embrace it. Believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Give your life over him. Confess your sin to him and embrace the life that he has for you, right? So you own the gift. That's number one. And then number two, live the gift. Got to live it out. Got to live out the gift of God's grace and imitate the example of Christ. The gospel teaches us nothing if it does not teach us that we're to be sacrificially loving toward others. The gospel teaches us nothing if we're not to live sacrificially for the good of others, putting the interests of others ahead of our own for their good, just like Christ has done for us. That's what Jesus did. He put our interests ahead of, our, of his own. He loved us. And so we're to follow suit. That's what the early Christians did. That's what this church in Jerusalem was doing 2,000 years ago. They were putting each other's interests ahead of one another to the point that they were willing to sell houses and land and property and possessions to help one another out. They were displaying the gospel. They were living out the very gift that they themselves had received. So question to us is, are we going to allow this example to influence us? That's a hard one, isn't it? Well, I don't, I don't have but so much stuff, and then it becomes part of me, and then my life has to change. So I'd rather throw it up and spit it out, hate it at the apostles' feet. This is the impact that comes from being surrounded by genuine believers who are authentically living out the gospel. Joe saw them living out the gospel. He saw their acts of charity and seeing it, it filled him to do likewise. So you see the, how important it is to be surrounded by good influence and to allow that influence to actually fill us up. So are you like Joseph? Can you call yourself a Joseph? Hey, I'm actually surrounded by some pretty stout and mature Christians, right? Real, authentic believers of Christ. I'm, I've got a little community of them, and they're doing it. They're knocking it out. They're getting it done for Christ. They're displaying the gospel through their words and their actions, through their giving and their charity, and their, their sacrifice in every way. And it compels me, and it stirs me to follow suit. Are you like Joseph? Do you have a community around you that's influencing you the right way. Well, Joseph was influenced the right way, and I wish the story ended there because we all like happy endings. Happy endings are nice. Happy endings are like, that's how we end the fairy tales, right? And happily ever after. Well, unfortunately, this honeymoon period in church history ended rather abruptly. 
And that's when we get into Acts chapter 5. In verses 1 and 2, there is a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. And the two of them together, they conspire to mislead the church. To mislead the church. They sell a piece of property, tell the church, we sold it for this amount, and we're giving that full amount to the church to help the needy. The problem was that it was a lie. They weren't giving all of the proceeds over to the church for the sake of the meeting. Like, it wasn't wrong for them to sell it for whatever it is that they sold it for. That's fine. And it wasn't wrong that they didn't give all the money to the church. That's not wrong. That's between a person and God. What was wrong was that they lied about it. Verse 8 pretty much tells us that they just bold-faced lied. Oh, we sold it for this and we're giving you all the money. That was the problem with them. Again, it would have been okay if they said, we're going to give 80 and keep 20, or keep 80 and give 20. Like, it doesn't, like, that's not the problem. The problem was that they lied about the amount. So, there's a church gathering that happens. And at this point, Ananias shows up. His wife is not there. And God gives Peter, the Apostle Peter, supernatural insight into the fact that this couple is conspiring and lying to the church about it. And so Peter, at church, calls the guy out. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? Honestly, honestly. Tony, dude, let me call you out on something in front of everybody. Like, like how wrong is that, right? It's actually a right, but we don't do it because anyway, I don't know anything about Tony, so you're, you're off the hook. <laughs> but just imagine in a church gathering, the leadership calling you out because they know that you're just in defiance and sin and lying about it. So he calls them out, and in verse 3, uh, Acts 5, verse 3, Peter says to him, Why has Satan, why has the devil filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And as soon as Peter stops speaking to him, in verse 5, Ananias dies. No rebuttal, no defense. No excuses, no rationalization, no buts. He died. Right then, in front of everyone, in, in the middle of church. That makes for a good <laughs> praise service, right? And then in verse 6, it says that a few guys, so there's always a bunch of Justins in the crowd, a few guys... <laughs> They say, all right, Jack, you grab the legs, Justin, you grab the arms, and we're going to go out, and we're going to dig a hole and throw the body. Like a couple of guys get up in church and take the body out. They dig a hole, they throw the body in, they fill it back in. No funeral. No warm and fuzzy sentiments. No you googly. Eulogy. Nothing. Yeah, that's pretty brutal, is it not? Man, like he just dies. They take him out back and throw him in a hole, and that's that. They didn't tell the family. It wasn't in the paper. Nothing. So, then his wife, Sapphira, shows up. While they're putting the body in the ground, the wife shows up, clueless as to what's happening in here. Peter actually gives her a chance, gives her a chance to come clean. But the lady doubles down on the lie. And she say, oh, yeah, 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 that's verse 8. Oh, yeah, we, we sold it for such and such. We've given all the money. Yeah, yeah. She doubled down on the lie. 
And so Peter says to her in verse 9, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Holy Spirit, to test the Spirit of the Lord, right? To lie to God. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They're about to carry you out. And in verse 10, she immediately dies right there. And I tell you, this, this is really tragic. This is, a, this is a total tragedy, what's happening here. But because I'm demented, I find it funny. Because in my mind, this is how this plays out. The guys take the body out, like they dig the hole, and they throw Ananias in, right? They're out for three hours. This is how long it took to dig the hole, stick the body in, and bury it, right? And the guys barely show back up another body. And they're like, really? Like, they're rolling their eyes. Bring out your dead. Like, it's just like, it's, this is the day. This is happening. Like, people, stop lying because we're tired. We don't want to dig any more holes. So I see a lot of eye rolling there from those, because I would. Now, so what are we to make? What are we to make of this story? And it really comes down to this. We need to decide, are we going to be like Joseph or are we going to be like Ananias and Sapphira? It, it comes down to whether we're going to be influenced by Jesus or we're going to be influenced by the devil. Am I going to be filled with God's truth and grace or am I going to be filled with the lies and temptations of Satan. I mean, this is, this is what the story is putting before us. We got to choose which one are we going to be. It's interesting that there is a very close parallel between what happened in Acts chapter 5 and what took place in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. Both stories involve a married couple. In both stories, the devil shows up. And in both stories, the devil influences Right, exerts a certain amount of influence, and the results are catastrophic. And this is what the devil does. He plants wrong thoughts in us. Somehow, by various ways, he plants wrong thoughts. He suggestions and impressions and, and options and other courses of actions all around. He lays it down. He's very cunning. This is what he does. He's the father of lies. He plants wrong thoughts in our mind and heart somehow. He takes the truth, and then he twists it just enough right, to, in order to corrupt it so that we may be corrupted, to destroy us, to hurt us, to mislead us. So in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve allowed the devil to mislead them. They allowed him the opportunity to influence them to the bad. So if you were to go back and read Genesis chapter 3, it goes like this. The, the devil approaches the woman, but the husband is right there. He's right there. So he's really talking to both of them. He says, you know what? Don't listen to what God said. Don't mind what it is that God actually said. When you eat of that fruit that he said don't eat from, you're not going to die. I know he said you would die. You're not going to die. You're not going to die. Not only will you not die, you will actually become like God. It's what he tells them. Meaning just like that, they, they get tempted in that thought begins to influence them. And now they're doubting the very word of God. They're doubting the truth of God. They're doubting what it is that God had actually said 
to them. They allowed the devil this influence. And what, the, what happened, the results were devastating. They were kicked out of paradise. They were kicked out of a garden, a beautiful, the, the most beautiful place ever created by God. Kick, kicked out of it. Their relationship with God was broken and death entered the world as a result. And it's why today we all deal with the mess that we deal with because those people were tempted and influenced by the devil to not trust the very word of God and were influenced to the bad. That's what took place. And so the devil, I want you to know this, has no new tricks. He, he hasn't figured out new systems and new strategies for misleading and influences to the bad. He did the same thing in Acts 5 that he did in Genesis chapter 3. He filled the heart of Ananias and filled the heart of Sapphira with a lie. Kind of like this. Hey, all right, sell that piece of property. Tell everyone, tell the church that you sold it for this amount. And then tell the church that you're giving that full amount to help the poor and the needy. Just lie about it. We know that you're selling it for this much, but just lie about it. Because you're going to look really good. You're going to look really good in the eyes of these people. They're going to think, that, oh, you're so mature and spiritually profound. And you're so sacrificial in everything that you do. And, and you're so generous. Oh, and people are going to up the lie, did he? The devil can't make anyone do anything. All he did was offer a suggestion. And it was Ananias and Sapphira that then took that suggestion and ran with it. They're the ones that took that suggestion, embraced it, and carried it out. Just came to like the very notion that they would look good. All pious and self-right. That we don't do the same thing. Because we are all very easily tempted on a little bit better than we really are. I sacrifice this much for my spouse and this much for my children and the kudos. And, and it, it makes us feel good. And, and the other part of it is we don't want people to know. A very good friend of mine. He's a pastor. He's a fellow church planter in the eastern part of the building. And so like, like, man, like not that it makes it right anywhere, but it, like even after church. So she claimed that in all sorts of ministry in the life of the church. He was married himself because, I mean, it's, it, there was a lot of stuff happening alongside with that. I can't believe someone could possibly think that this happened. And, and so he's, he's, wor- he's giving his spin on the, your turn. And the man just sat there quietly. I mean, just looking down, just sat there quietly with his head down. He had died. He died. My friend, fellow pastor, church planter, addressed him and said, your turn to speak. God took his life. True story. True story. The man was filled with a... He was lying to the church about it, which according to this text, to lie to the church is equivalent to lying to God. So he was lying to God about it. And just like God did with Ananias and Sapphira, he ended that man's life. And so I'm up here and I'm watching a lot of the faces and there's a bit of a a shock, right? You're a bit stunned. And I understand I understand why, but what should shock us, folks, it's not that that happened either in Acts 5 or at my friend's church two years ago. What should shock us is that it doesn't happen more often. Who of us here is we all guilty of all sorts of sinning 
and pretending? Aren't we all guilty of that? Aren't we all guilty of, of, of spiritual narcissism, making ourselves look holier than thou when we really are not? Are we not all guilty of the same thing and even lying about it? Instead of being honest and confessing our sin to one another, which is what Scripture tells us to do, instead of that, aren't we guilty of then hiding it and lying about it and living in a secret lie for a day, a week, a month, and years? Are we not all guilty of the exact same thing? And there should be a degree to where when we read the story in Acts chapter 5 and we hear this story that this stuff actually does happen, it should fill us with a, a bit of fear, should it not? I mean, if we're like reasonable, intelligent, logical Christians who believe the word of God, should this not fill us with a, a degree of fear? And I believe it should because it did with this church in Acts 5 verse 11. It says there that the whole church, the whole church was Filled with fear at what had happened. And why? Because of the realization that the devil is real. I know we live in a world where we're all so sophisticated that there's no such thing as the devil. There is. The sweetest trick of the devil is to convince the world that he never existed. He does exist. He is a real being that exercises manipulation and perversiveness and persuasion in a very cunning manner. And he's trying to influence us in order to hurt us. And if we listen, if our guard is down, if we're not standing firm on the truth, it will influence us and then we will sin. And there are consequences to sin. Now, praise God that our God is a God of grace. Praise God. It should bring comfort to our hearts that God is the God of love, that he is kind and compassionate, merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Praise God that that is who our God is, the true living God. He is a God of grace. Thank God that he sent Jesus to rescue us out of our sin. This is why Jesus came, right, to lift the guilt and the, the shame and the burden and, and the sin off of us to pay that debt that we may be forgiven. But as true as that truth is, as wonderful as it is, let us not forget forget another truth about God, that he is holy and he is not to be trifled with. We are not to tread upon the grace of God. God is light and he cannot abide in sin, nor will he let sin abide. He is light. In him there is no darkness. He is perfect in righteousness and in holiness. I know this is unpopular these days. We live in a world where it's all just God is love, God is love, God is love. You know, it's true. The scripture, 1 John tells us God is love, but that has to be tethered with what it tells in the scripture. He is holy, holy, holy. It's interesting that of all the attributes of God, the only one that is said in triplicate is the fact that he is holy. It never says God is love, love, love. It says he is holy, holy, holy. We cannot forget who God is and that his standard is perfect godliness. His standard to us is complete and total, 100% faithful obedience and sinlessness. That's the standard. And it's a standard that we cannot attain. 
In no shape, form, or fashion, no matter how hard you try or how much you flex your spiritual muscles, in no shape, or form, or fashion, just today, let alone the rest of your life, are you going to be able to attain that standard? Praise God for Jesus. So what Jesus did is that Jesus came not to lower the standard, but to elevate us to it. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Jesus makes up the difference. Where we fall short, he raises us and seats us up in the heavenly places. See, this life that we're called to live of sinless perfection that we cannot do, Jesus did for us. He came, he was tempted in every way, yet he never sinned. That's the gospel. That's the grace of God. That is the love of God. He made a way for us to be in right relationship with himself. He made a way. He came and lived that sinless life, and then he went to a cross and paid for our debt and raised us up to the standard of God. We don't have to do it. He does it for us. And the fact that God would be so loving and so gracious and so generous and sacrificial toward us should compel us to be faithful to him. Now, I always say this. like We should, we should strive to be uh, obedient to God, not because we have to, but because we want to. The loving sacrifice of Jesus should compel me to loving obedience to Jesus. There should be a joy and a gratitude out of who Jesus is and what he has done for us that then just puts wind in our sail and, and, and pushes us toward faithfulness to the God who loves us. And so, how do we take steps that way? That's a challenge. That's a challenge. Like, I want to be that person. So how do, what do I do? How do I take steps that way? Well, you got to be filled. Your life needs to be filled with the right influence. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. You need to be filled with time with God in prayer and in Bible study. Your life needs to be Filled with listening to the very voice of God and the heart of God and the truth of God in your life. You need to be filled with that so that it may influence you. You've got to be filled with God's truth so that you may discern the lies of the devil. And folks, your life needs to be filled with genuine, authentic Christians doing the right thing the right way for the right reason. That you may have an example, a real tangible example to follow in this world. So how do you need to respond to all of this this morning? Are we going to be like Joseph or are we going to be like Ananias and Sapphira? Are we going to be influenced by Jesus or are we going to be influenced by the devil and the things of the world and by darkness? Are we going to be filled with the grace and the truth of God and the gospel or are we going to be filled with something of this world that only leads to destruction? This morning I ask, if you're here and you've never received that gift that God so freely offers, that that's where it starts. That's where it begins. Just receive the gift that God offers, embrace it, hug it into your soul, grab, grab hold to it, take ownership of it, make it real. There's, always, there's a decision that has to be made. There's a definitive decision a person needs to make. Do I believe in Jesus or not? Am I going to put my faith in him or not? Am I going to follow him or not? I ask that you would choose to follow Christ and to give your life over to him who gave his life for you. 
And then once we make, out, make that decision, we need to live out that gift. We need to be humble and honest and open and transparent and confess our sins. We need to strive toward holiness and godliness to the best of our ability and helping and asking for fellow believers to help us. We need to strive to be giving and generous and sacrificial with time and money and talents and all that good stuff and actually live out the gospel in our life and follow the example of that church 2,000 years ago. Are we going to be influenced by the grace of God or by something else? I tell you, if we choose, if we make the right decision, choosing for God to influence, we will be love-filled, we will be faith-filled, we will be hope-filled. And we will take steps each and every day toward enjoying that better, blessed, abundant life that God offers to each and every one of us. So I ask you to just say, close your eyes and bow your head where you are, and I'm going to ask you to, to respond how you need to respond to this. It's not the most warm and fuzzy story, but I'm glad that it's in the Bible because sometimes this is what we need. We need a little bit of cold water in our face just to make sure that we're awake and alert to the gospel of grace. Ananias and Sapphira, as best as I could tell, were believers. And man, they got influenced the wrong way. So I ask, what are you letting influence your heart? What is your mind filled with? Gracious Father, I thank you that you are who you are, that you are a God of love and grace and compassion, Lord, but we give you praise that you are a consuming fire, that you are almighty, all-knowing that you are holy and sovereign. And Lord, I pray that we would be stirred with a, a right understanding, a bit of fear and trepidation, Lord, but also understanding that we approach you, Lord, by a throne of grace. You're not a, a tyrant, but you're benevolent. Like that father in the story of the prodigal son, Lord, you welcome us back every time we wander away. You welcome us back with open arms. You are a good father, loving and generous, forgiving. And if there is any doubt of that truth, Lord, let us always remember the cross of Christ. For that crucifixion proves how deeply you love us and how much you want it to go well for us. That you would crush your own son to free us from our spiritual poverty. That you, Jesus, would shed your blood that we may be rich in grace. Lord, I pray that our faith and our heart, our confession would be in Jesus and only Jesus. Pray that we would look to you and you alone for salvation and for hope in this world. 
And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to follow the example of Joseph in this story. Lord, protect us from lies and plant your truth into our heart, Lord, that we may honor you and be used for you in this world for the good of others. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray.